Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty. This week, we're going to debunk the myth that Eskimos have hundreds of words for snow. And then I have a book excerpt from Jack Gantos that will make you want to write a novel, especially if you're a kid. Let's get started. Since we're heading into the snowy part of the year, at least in North America, it seems like a good time to address a long-standing language myth that Eskimos have vast numbers of words for snow. The idea was popularized by the now well-known amateur linguist Benjamin Lee Whorf in the 1940s, and especially after it made its way into popular anthropology textbooks in the 1960s and 1970s. Worf himself wasn't terribly specific. His number was approximately five Eskimo words for snow. But somehow the story was so compelling and romantic that it got out of control and grew bigger and bigger like the fish that got away, with writers claiming 50, 100, and even 400 Eskimo words for snow. This idea has been debunked multiple times by modern linguists, first by Laura Martin at Cleveland State University and then by others, but it shows up again and again in the popular press and online. Every day, people tweet about Eskimos having 50, 100, and more words for snow, because whether it's true or not, it seems to be a useful cliché to emphasize that something is important to a group of people. For example... Eskimos have 50 words for snow, but Americans have 13 words for one type of sandwich, referring to the submarine, hoagie, hero, grinder, and so on. Or that something should be important. Eskimos have 100 words for snow. I wish we had 100 words for love. Aww. The concept is so widespread that Kate Bush titled her 2011 album, 50 Words for Snow, and Glenn Whitman coined the term snow-clone to refer to phrases that fit the pattern described by linguist Jeffrey Pullum in 2003. If Eskimos have N words for snow, X surely have M words for Y. As in, if Eskimos have 200 words for snow, Seattleites surely have 100 words for coffee. The problem is that, well, there are multiple problems with the concept of Eskimos having tons of words for snow. First, linguistically, Eskimos aren't exactly one thing. The people you may think of as Eskimos live in a broad region that covers parts of Canada, Alaska, Greenland, and eastern Siberia. And they speak at least two different languages, Inuit and Yupik. And those languages have multiple dialects. Just as we talked a few weeks ago about how English and many other languages trace back to a common language called Proto-Indo-European, Inuit and Yupik trace back to a different common language called Eskimo-Ilut. So saying Eskimos have a hundred words for snow is kind of like saying Europeans have a hundred words for monarchs. It might be telling you something broad about culture, but it isn't really telling you much about language. The second problem is, what is a word? That may seem like a picky question, but it matters because the Inuit and Yupik languages make words in different ways from how we make words in English. For example, these are what are called agglutinative languages, which sounds like the word glue because the words share the same Latin origin. Agglutinative languages glue meanings together, technically morphemes. Agglutinative languages you might be more familiar with include Japanese and Esperanto. 
Dave Wilton explained agglutination well in an Oxford Words blog post with respect to the so-called Eskimo words for snow. He wrote, quote, The West Greenlandic word siku, or sea ice, is used as the root for sikursuit, pack ice, sikuliak, new ice, sikuak, thin ice, and sikurluk, melting ice. And I apologize, I'm probably pronouncing all those wrong. It's the best I can do, sorry. (laughs) But it's not that West Greenlandic has so many more words for describing snow than English. It's just that West Greenlandic expresses ideas by gluing meaningful units of language together into one word, whereas English uses more phrases and compounds. We express all the same ideas, sea ice, pack ice, new ice, thin ice, and melting ice. We just do it a little differently given the way our language is constructed. Think of it this way. Start with a lexeme. That's essentially a unit of meaning. It's the word you see when you look up something in the dictionary. For example, the verb look is a lexeme. Then you have different ways of inflecting it, different forms of the lexeme. We have a few in English. In this case, looked, looking, looks, and so on. But the Inuit and Yupik languages are highly inflectional. According to an article by Anthony Woodbury, a linguist at the University of Texas in Austin, one Yupik noun lexeme can have more than 280 inflectional forms. Are you going to start with the lexeme for snowflake and then call every single one of those 280 inflectional forms a separate word? That doesn't make sense, but it's one way that people misunderstand how many words there are for snow. So you're probably still wondering, if it's not 50 or 100 or 400 words, how many is it? Well, Woodbury lists 15 that are present in a Yupik dictionary published in 1984. But he hedges that depending on how you look at it, this is just a ballpark number. It could be 12, it could be 24, but it's definitely not 100. You'll find five words for types of snow particles, snowflake, frost, fine snow or rain particles, drifting particles, and clinging particles. Five words for types of fallen snow, fallen snow on the ground, soft, deep fallen snow on the ground, crust on fallen snow, fresh fallen snow, and fallen snow floating on water. I like that one. It's my favorite. Three words for snow formations, snow bank, snow block, and snow cornice, and two words for meteorological events, blizzard and severe blizzard. Sometimes the hundred words for snow myth is used beyond a cliché and is instead used to argue that because Eskimos have so many words for snow, they conceive of snow in different ways that we can't even begin to imagine, that your language determines or limits your thoughts. I'm aware of at least a few other arguments like this that have also been debunked, For example, multiple languages have just one word that covers both the color blue and the color green. Researchers sometimes call these GRU languages, GRU being a portmanteau of green and blue. But people who speak these GRU languages can still distinguish between blue and green. They recognize that they're different colors, even though they're covered by one word— In the same way, we'd recognize that light blue and dark blue are different colors, even though we'd sometimes call them both just blue. 
There are some subtle differences. People who speak languages that distinguish between green and blue find it easier to accurately pick a bluish-green color they've seen earlier out of a group of swatches because it's easier to remember something you have a distinct name for. But it's not that they're better at recognizing or conceiving the difference between blue and green. And finally, Worf himself also put forth an argument that the Hopi language didn't have words for time, and therefore the Hopi people had a different concept of time from Europeans. But this has also been proven wrong. Languages are just different. They don't determine what we're able to think about or are not able to think about. I can think about snow floating on water even if we don't have a specific word for that in English. We do seem to want these snow clone-like cliches, though. While I was researching Eskimo words for snow, I came across other similar ideas. Trobriand islanders of Papua New Guinea have many words for yams. The Hanuno language of the Philippines has many words for rice. Australians have many words for sand. And Arabs have multiple words for camel. So when you're out skiing or snowboarding or sledding or just shoveling your driveway this winter— Notice that the snow is heavy and wet, or light and fluffy, or mashed potatoes like my stepmom calls the snow on the ski slopes in the afternoon sun. But don't believe the people who try to tell you that Eskimos have a hundred words for snow. Next, I have an excerpt from Jack Gantos's fabulous new book, Writing Radar. Jack is an award-winning children's fiction author, and I had the pleasure of meeting him at a publishing event many years ago, and he lived up to all expectations. He's so creative and funny. All the other authors gave prepared talks about our backgrounds, and then at the end, instead of giving a prepared talk like I presume he was supposed to do too, Jack stood up and told a story he'd made up on the spot using each of our names and a detail from our stories. It was one of the most impressive acts of spontaneous creativity I think I've ever seen. And the exciting news is that now Jack has this new book called Writing Radar that's something of a how-to book to help kids get started writing creatively and seeing themselves as writers. Like most things from Jack, it's funny and interspersed with stories. So the story leading up to the excerpt I'm going to read to you is about how he stole his older sister's journal when he was a kid. Here we go. After a run-in with Betsy, I restarted my journal mission. And this time, I did it the right way. No funny business. Here's what I did, and what I'm about to tell you is exactly what I want you to do. I made a deal with myself and took an oath that would change my entire life. After school, I was in the library helping the librarian, Mrs. Hammer, reshelve books. She has a last name that made her sound tough, and she was. She'd been fired from two other schools for, quote, abusive behavior. I wasn't sure if that meant abusive kids or abusive books or both, but I knew that when she hit a kid with a book, both kid and book suffered. But she also had a big heart and protected me from all the wicked kids who never read but just sharked around the library looking for trouble. So I was happy to help her out whenever she asked. Well, I had a book cart full of returns I was reshelving. You can probably guess that the G section was my favorite reshelving territory. That day, I did what I always did. 
As I pushed my book cart around, my fingers crossed the spines of the G authors until I came to my future book slot, the one with Galdone on one side and George on the other. I could imagine my book with my last name, Gantos, fitting snugly on the shelf between those two authors. Of course, I didn't have a book with my name and title on it to reshelve between Galdone and George, so I shoved in the next best thing. I stuck my hand between those books and wiggled it back and forth until I opened up a dark, vacant slot. As I stood there, a powerful feeling came over me, and I lowered my head. My father always told me that a man's handshake is as good as his word. And so, with my hand pressed between those books, I whispered an oath and promised myself that I would begin to write a book, no matter how hard the task. And I'd trust and believe in myself, and I wouldn't be a quitter, and my book would someday fit exactly where my hand was now. I placed my other hand over my heart. I give my word of honor, I said gravely, and then slowly shook hands with that empty slot. Once I removed my hand, I quickly finished up my library work. I waved goodbye to Mrs. Hammer and marched out the library door and down the street to the stationery store while thinking deeply about my oath and what I had to do to keep it. I had saved my chore money, and at the store I bought an inexpensive new journal. It was a small black book that was an artist's sketchbook. There was no lock on it. The pages were unlined and unnumbered for drawing, and the binding was strong because I dropped my books a lot. The black book came with no directions or rules. Whatever I wrote inside of it, good or bad, was up to me. The sharp tip of my pen was now the boss of every word in the dictionary, and it felt good to be the boss of something as amazingly powerful as the entire English language. All I had to do was tell each word where to line up. That sounded easy enough, but I suspected it wasn't easy. Words always have a mind of their own. As it turns out, my writing oath became one of the most important promises I ever made to myself, and it was a promise I kept. So I want you to go to your library and find exactly where your future book with your name on it will fit on the shelf. Then I want you to shove your hand into that slot and promise yourself that you too will write a book and that someday it will be on the library shelf for some reader to check out and take great pleasure in reading. Yes, I want you to do that. Not just for me, but for yourself. Now do it. Again, that was an excerpt from Writing Radar by Jack Gantos, available where all fine books are sold. This week, thanks to Ken Wright, who posted a picture of where he listens, making pancakes for his boys every Saturday morning. They looked delicious. And Indy DS, who listens early in the morning at the gym. Thank you to AlbanyYo1 for the nice review, and to Faye from Beijing, China, who wrote a review about using the podcast to learn English as a new struggling foreign student in the U.S. It melted my heart a little bit, and I'm glad I could help. Thank you for sharing your story. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. If you're still looking for gifts, check out my 2018 tip-a-day calendar, The Grammar Daily. Grammar Girl is part of the Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network, and you can find all my articles and old podcasts at quickanddirtytips.com. While you're there, check out the Nutrition Diva. It's the time of year when we're all thinking about food, and she has years of great tips for you. 
That's all. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>